This week, I am joined by none other than Matt Alderman. He's uh, in place of John Strand this week, and in our first segment, we are going to interview Harry Sferdlove. He's the Chief Technology Officer over at Edgewise. We're going to talk about zero trust segmentation. It's going to be a lot of fun. Then, in the enterprise security news, Symantec makes two acquisitions this week. Threat Quotient has an integration. Firemon delivers some new and exciting functionality. Stackpath makes a partnership. And some more acquisition and funding updates from the likes of Veracode, Shape Security, Tomo Bravo, and more. So stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly for security professionals by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's InkMan SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. InkMan SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response life cycle automation process today. Keep your cybersecurity incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash security weekly and request to see Inkman soar live in action. Stop attackers from domain credential theft and lateral movement with a 99% success rate by using artificial intelligence to control the attacker's perception of the environment. Javelin Networks is the world's first endpoint intrusion containment platform to protect domain networks. Javelin detects targeted attacks and breaches by obfuscating Active Directory, domain controllers, domain identities, domain credentials, and all domain resources. It only takes one compromised machine to jeopardize the entire organization. Don't be a victim. Visit javelin-networks.com and request a demo of AD Protect today. Are you worried about PCI compliance? Does your development team understand or care about security? Are you ready to face a breach of your customer's sensitive data? See the worst that can happen before it does. Black Hills Information Security can help you help management see the future. Email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com to find out how a web application penetration test can mitigate the risk before you go live. Welcome everyone to episode 114 of Enterprise Security Weekly being recorded on November 7th, 2018. I'm your host, Paul Asadorian, joined remotely by Mr. Matt Alderman, who's currently the CEO of Security Weekly. It sounds so weird to say it still. It's, I, it hasn't like fully sunk in, Matt, it's, uh, but it, it's great to be back working with you again. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, we announced kind of prematurely last week on ESW, so we've done this a couple of weeks in a row, Yeah, but I think it's day four five today's day five yeah because yeah. thursday's the one week anniversary so still working through the the kinks but uh at least the shows are going well that's it that's it yeah happy uh you could host uh john strand has been really busy i i think for most penetration testing firms um q4 specifically november and december uh are very very busy for them because i think everyone realized and i remember this when you know i was running a pen test uh company you know, November would hit and they go, oh, we got to do our pen test for the end of the year. And then like everyone seems to come out of the woodwork and go, I want to do a pen test for the end of the year. Uh, so those folks get really busy. Um, but I think, uh, 
he'll be back in a, uh, not next week, but the following. So a uh, quick announcement, uh, our webcast with Signal Sciences, which way should you shift testing in the SDLC? This is going to be held tomorrow from 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern time, securityweekly.com forward slash Signal Sciences, where you can hear from myself, Larry Pesce and Zane Lackey. That's right. Two uh, people uh, arguably more famous than I am, uh, which is kind of funny. I have an uh, inside story about Zane being famous. Zane's name comes up a lot on a lot of different briefing calls and such, all in a good light. So you're definitely going to want to check out this uh, webcast as we're going to teach you about the SDLC, the various components and the benefits of shifting really in either uh, direction. So make sure you register for that. And now, I'd like to bring on our feature guest for today. Uh, this is, of course, a sponsored interview by Edgewise. Uh, it was one of our, our latest uh, partners, and we're happy to have them on board. You can go to edgewise.net forward slash security weekly. Register there to get more information, um, which you should, because we really like their products. We like their position in the market, uh, hence, you know, bring them on and, and working with them. And we're lucky to have Harry Sverdlov with us. He was previously the CTO of Carbon Black, um, as well as spent some time at McAfee. You've had a stellar career uh, in security, Harry. And uh, currently, he is the CTO uh, and founder of Edgewise. Harry, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, wonderful to have you. Um, I wanted to talk first about when we talked about you know, zero trust segmentation which I believe is the tagline currently on your website, which I, I really like. Um, the way that I understood it, and I want to just dive right into the, the thing that helped me understand it was when I thought about authentication and getting rid of passwords, right? Nobody likes passwords. And I sit down at my desk in the morning and the software that's going to authenticate me looks at a lot of different factors, right? Looks at my phone, looks at the location of my phone. My phone's connected to the same Wi-Fi network as it always is, my computer's connected to that same Wi-Fi network. The headset that's maybe connected to my computer or phone has that same Bluetooth ID that it, it has for maybe a year. Um, and, and I'm holding my phone the same way. Um, you know, my mouse moves in the same way. And the software says, you're good, Paul. Like, you don't really have to give me anything extra in terms of authentication. But if those factors change or I change location, I'm logging in from China, uh, then there's various levels. It may require a password. It may require my two-factor authentication token. And what I realized was that Edgewise basically has built that for applications. Um, and I'm like, that. I'm like, that's like a why didn't I think of that kind of moment? And I'm like, that's awesome. So I don't know we've talked and that. I think is a good way of thinking of it. Certainly helped me uh, understand the value that's provided by your product. So, you know, I think that's a great way to, to sort of sum it up. We kind of all have this understanding of multi-factor authentication for users, um, where you've got your phone, your location, your uh, device ID, all of these different attributes and different ones are used depending on the environment. So if you're in China, as you said, you might get an additional authentication request or something else because the environment isn't as secure. We, we are, we're fairly familiar with that kind of concept, but what happens when we're talking about what's really being the target of attacks, workloads, servers, data centers, where there's no user that's gonna sit there and enter a code, there's no biometric that you can do, and how do you do essentially multi-factor authentication for the systems that are running automatically or running non-interactively? Um, and that's that principle is exactly the principle that forms the zero trust networking that Edgewise applies to data centers um, and to cloud computing. 
And I think it's a really great problem to tackle. You know, I mentioned my time spent as a penetration tester and I think people like think it's like it's in the movies and like there's this really like sexy factor about it. But oftentimes, as, as all of us know on the panel today and many listening, like pen testing is really about, hey, look, I can connect to that service and it, it doesn't authenticate me properly or it's not configured properly. And therefore, I can gain traction and get in the inside of the network. I mean, that's essentially the part of the issue with, with hacking is, you know, even going back to an incident we had, we had a Docker instance and its API was exposed to the Internet. And so we had a security incident. And I think that's where a lot of it, uh, security incidents stem from is not the sexy hacking, but it's that authentication of connections to services and applications, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's common basic hygiene. And, and what, exactly what you said, which is whether it's because of a known vulnerability or a user error, you expose an API, um, any number of factors. There's 19 CVEs reported every single day. So new vulnerabilities come all, all the time. The, the awareness is basically you are going to get breached. That doesn't mean you're going to get compromised, but it means that it's very easy for an attacker or even an insider to gain access to a system inside your network. And if we deal with this model of, well, we assume if you're inside, you're trusted. So you go ahead and do what you got to do because we've already authenticated you. That's going to be a failing proposition, especially if we consider that you are already inside. And if we start taking a look at our infrastructure and say, what if we assume it doesn't matter if you're inside, outside, in China, in a coffee shop, in a workplace, your network assume it's always infected, then how would you go about securing those communications and those activities? Yeah, and, and that gets tricky because of all the different ways, both legacy and new, that we have to deploy applications. You know, I remember back in the day, like I'd rack physical servers. And now today, you know, I, I don't even really need a container, right? We can go right to serverless and I can just drop my application in the cloud. So how um, in, in your solutions, Harry, how are you able to manage those connections and, and requests, you know, given the like all these different ways we have to deploy applications and, and servers today? No, absolutely. And by the way, on that note, when when I uh, started Edgewise, one of the things I miss is I miss having a rack. Right. I miss having you know a rack space with all the blinky lights that go green and red, and that you know worst case scenario you could unplug it. Yeah. That doesn't exist anymore. <clears throat> so those those form factors, the the way we used to do things, if you think about firewalls and traditional firewalls, it's a form factor that you plug your network into and you plug a tap into it, or you you basically plug your pipes through it. Well, when that form factor is gone, there's nowhere to plug in. There's no plugs, if you will, in the cloud. Um, and the way we deal with this at Edgewise is we actually do our monitoring at the host level. Um, and we monitor communications both to serverless as well as managed servers. But it doesn't matter if they're physical, if they're virtual, if they're in China, or if they're in you know, US East or US West. Um, on, you know, the only way you can truly ascertain what is the identity of the, of the entities that are communicating is to be there at that point when they are communicating and where they are communicating. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we talk about agents, but I, I think the way it's gone, I think a few years ago, everyone was kind of like really anti-agent. I mean, Matt and I were actually working at Tenable, right? And, you know, we talk about agents and there was a lot of anti-agent. But I think today, because of the all the different ways you can deploy uh, servers and applications, people are coming around to, well, yeah, to like have that level of functionality, I, I need to have an agent and people are, are okay with it. Do you find that there's been kind of a shift in that uh, arena? Well, there's definitely been a shift. The way I kind of think of agents is I tend to think of it the same way that Winston Churchill says about democracy. It's the worst form of government. It's just better than all the rest. You know, if we could do what we want to do without an agent, well, I would do this tomorrow. Right. Um, but if you think about, you know, 
doing network security or doing communication security from the wire, that's basically sitting at the bottom of a swimming pool, which is your network, um, looking up, trying to ascertain who's walking by. And all the images are fuzzy. You really don't know who's there. You actually have to be above the swimming pool to see who's walking by, who's communicating. Um, and so you're absolutely right, especially when you have legacy systems, hybrid networks, elastic systems, um, constantly changing addresses to be there, whether it's in container, sidecar, in the host, um, there is definitely a temperature and awareness that unfortunately or fortunately, it is the best place to get the best and most accurate telemetry. Um, and I think certainly, you know, in the last couple, certainly last decade, um, the technology is, has advanced enough that agents really aren't as anathema as they once used to be. Yeah. Um, now, can, I want to talk about the, the telemetry that you collect. And, you know, I started off with the example that I can understand uh, of the user, right, who wants to log in. But how does that translate to, like, the different types of telemetry and data points that you collect to start making decisions about basically what can talk to what? Right. So if you think about what is it that you, that you want to actually authenticate, you want to authenticate identity, you want to authenticate environment, and you want to authenticate transaction. Um, and all three of those coordinate to decide whether or not something is trustworthy. So in the case of identity, one of the things that Edgewise gathers is we gather a number of attributes about all of the processes that are requesting communications. Immutable attributes such as its cryptographic hash, its location, its file size, its, if it's digitally signed, its, its uh, digital certificate, information about that, loaded modules. And these are things that represent the identity of the software or the workload that's communicating. Then you have the environment, which is, you know, the UUID, the CPU ID of the, of the system you're running under other environmental factors. You know, an example of MFA that you were talking about, environment might be if you're in China. So something that's different that might require a level of additional trust. And then, of course, there's the transaction. What is it you're trying to do? So one of the challenges with this idea of just making black and white decisions or good and bad decisions based solely on identity is a lot of stuff, a lot of the software we have running, they're dual use. So you take something like Java or PowerShell or even a browser, it can be used for good and it can be used for bad. So it's not that just the identity alone is enough to ascertain, do I trust it? But if Java's accessing your database, maybe that's trustworthy and all of a sudden now Java's trying to query your Active Directory or trying to query your financial software. The identity of the software is still sound, but the transaction, what it's requesting is no longer sound. So what we do is we gather these identity attributes coupled with environment attributes and then look at the transaction that's being requested and policies are made off of identity plus transaction. It's usually me who gets, you know, uh, locked up on on the internet so right yeah oh are you back harry yeah i'm gonna have to go with so somebody out there doesn't want me talking about this stuff <laughs> that's it well you know i think it's interesting too that um when you talk about processes that you know like you have a browser and you may trust like your browser going out to the internet but you know when i look at what the attackers are doing is they're really using technologies like PowerShell and other like living off the land kind of activities. And at some point, I find the best detections are going, well, that process really doesn't have a use for that. Like, why is that, you know, PowerShell script downloading every single user in the domain? Or, you know, why is that browser trying to inject into some other DLL that it never should, ha you know, inject into? And I really think that in the detection game, that's what can be effective at stopping attackers today. 
Th that's absolutely right. And that's why a lot of times when you hear this, uh, it's buzzword, but you hear machine learning applied. Edgewise does this as well, which is if you observe, and one of the things we do is we observe what are the patterns of communication that are happening in your environment and build out models of what it is predictive or appropriate behavior. Um, and so you're absolutely right. In some organizations, maybe you have a Python script that does some funky things because DevOps is using it once a month to do something. But in most organizations, you're going to find there's a lot of dual use tools that don't have any legitimate uh, business use. Um, and they're sitting there waiting for somebody to come live off the land, take a quote unquote trustworthy piece of software and use it for nefarious purposes. Yeah, so this is um, similar to uh, what I've seen in other technologies, right? You're trying to understand behavior um, and then try to enforce that behavior, right? So it, what it sounds like is you're monitoring what different applications are doing, connections they're making. You're starting to understand behavior and also starting to wrap rules around it that says this app can do these things, but it can't do these other things, right? And, and is that kind of how the policy rules get generated ultimately from an enforcement perspective? Yeah, definitely. At a high level, that's absolutely right. I think one of the things that makes this unique is it, it's we do this a lot simpler than you might think. You know, if you think about traditional the old style HIPS, which is very complicated host based behavior detection because it looked at well, what registry settings they're modifying, what is it doing to the file system. There's so many attributes that are essential that are very mutable and software changes. What we're focused on specifically is who are you communicating with, um, and when you when that key behavior. Because at the end of the day, if you're going to attack something, you have to move laterally or you have to exfiltrate data. You have to make communications. Um, and that's the focused attribute we're working on and that we enforce based on your identity, the environment, and who is it you want to communicate with. So that very narrow set of behaviors allows the model to coalesce very quickly um, and to be resilient to all these other changes. Software is going to change. Your applications are going to change. Of course, they're going to change. But who they need to communicate with, that doesn't change as often. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think, you know, a lot of people think about, well, you know, that's going to be complicated and I don't know how it's going to do that. But have you ever tried to do it like with just a firewall? Because I have. <laughs> and I tell you what, you get it wrong 100% of the time. And it may not be right away. You can like I used and this was my project when I worked in the university when we first started implementing firewalls. Right. It's in it lets everything through. I'd analyze the logs. I'd go start adding rules. And as soon as I got to a certain point of being restrictive, there was always exceptions. And those exceptions weren't necessarily apparent right that day. It could be the next week when that batch job runs, uh, that runs every week. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I missed that. And they're like, why didn't that run? Well, because, you know, it's the firewall. And so doing that manual analysis, uh, I think you get it wrong all the time. And you need that machine learning. You need something that's helping you understand and then allowing you to make decisions. Yeah, I, you know, when I describe machine learning, I don't describe it with artificial intelligence because it's not sentient. It's not Skynet. It's the type of thing that if you had an infinite number of humans sitting with an infinite amount of time, right. you could do it. But, you know, the problem also with firewalls is ultimately there are so many variations, especially when you start dealing with elastic environments and data centers that you, you inevitably end up with any to any rules. You create these very broad brushed highways because it's too, too granular. Um, and one of the things that we found is when you actually start looking instead of at addresses, but actually application identity and pathways that we've achieved at least an order of five to six orders of reduction. So if you take a typical firewall, you're going to get 200 million events a day. Right. Of those, about a million of them are unique based on source address, destination address, port protocol. 
if you were to try to actually describe them in rules, you're going to end up with easily 10 to 20,000 different rules. We were able to, once we actually remove addresses, literally cancel them out of the equation and look at software communicating with software. So Postgres or Java speaking mm -hmm. to Postgres or App Server speaking to Java or your, your load balancer, Nginx speaking to your business application. We're able to take that same environment and describe it fully in about 120, sometimes just a few dozen rules. Yeah, the, it, I think the way to describe this a little bit is it's kind of like a distributed application firewall, right? You're your distribution point's the endpoint, but it's really at the application communication layer is where these rules are being enforced. So it's distributing that instead of having like a central choke point like you would in a traditional firewall deployment. Definitely. And one of the things we talk about, in, and, and we think it's a far more secure and manageable scenario, is you move that control plane as close to the thing you're trying to control. In this case, it's the workload. So instead of having these choke points, which often end up being also a performance impact on your network because you have to reroute everything through them, they're also a single point of failure. And we move that control plane down to the workload itself. That's yeah. awesome. So when a uh, customer is uh, deploying this or trying it for the first time, um, I guess kind of like walk us through the process. I'm assuming they have to deploy the agents and then there's a uh, monitoring mode that happens and then rules start, uh, you know, taking place after that. Like, what's that process look like? Absolutely. So what, one of the things we strive to do, as you mentioned, it is an agent and it's a dynamically loadable and unloadable kernel module. So it can be deployed without restarting and it can be undeployed or, or removed without restarting your systems, which is pretty important when you're dealing with back office or servers and data centers. Um, you deploy our agent, we provide uh, Chef or Puppet uh, scripts so that you can easily integrate it in your software distribution process. Once the agent's out there and, and it's within immediately, it just starts monitoring. It does two things. It monitors identity of applications, who's communicating, and it also does this, what we call uh, a, a attack surface analysis, where for every application that's listening on your network, it creates these half-open probes so that we can tell the user not just what's communicating, but what can communicate, which allows you to then quantify within, you know, within about an hour, you start seeing in our dashboard results that'll show you your applications and not only how many pathways they are using, but how many pathways are actually available, a measure of their overexposure, which helps you mm -hmm. just determine risk. In most cases, what we found is most networks, because of this any-to-any -any and over-permissiveness that's sort of necessary with firewalls, are about 90% plus overexposed. So for every 100 ways there are to get to your database, you only need maybe 10, 5 that are actually in use. So we profile that. You can immediately start building rules if you want to, but our machine learning system is also doing the analysis. And within 24 to 48 hours, we start providing recommendations as to here are rules that, that we are observing. We reach about a 99.99% coverage within 48 hours for most networks. And at that point, you can either choose to accept recommendations, you can create your own rules. One of the other things we do is because you, you wanna be as flexible as possible is we look at how applications are clustered. So that sometimes a rule isn't an application to an application, but rather this collection of business apps, I just want them to be able to talk amongst themselves. And as a whole, I want them to be able to talk to my database. And all of that, those analysis and recommendations occur within the, like I say, first 24 to 48 hours. That's fantastic. And then um, I'm assuming there's some kind of reporting and monitoring, right? And how are customers, uh, you know, once they've implemented it, taking uh, the monitoring of that behavior and then, you know, building it into their response and uh, analysis processes? 
Absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's very similar, like at most every security technology. If you think about sort of the NIST workflow of identity, identify, detect, protect, respond, um, it's the same exact in, uh, model. With Edgewise, the first thing is you identify what your assets are. And that's what our agent does automatically. It identifies all the workloads and um, identifies how they're communicating. Detect, this is mapping out what those pathways are, providing a model that, that describes your organization. Protect is when you start applying policies. But some customers, for example, don't initially go to protect. <clears throat> Excuse me. They go to monitor and they just want to know, I want to be, be alerted when there are deviations from the model. So as there is, it's not a learn mode and then a, mm. a, an apply mode. We're you. constantly learning. So for every hundred, every hundred events we do, we we take the first ninety percent, we build our models, and we apply them to the next ten percent. So that we're constantly relearning, reapplying, and we'll alert you whenever there's a deviation into the model, whether or not you choose to protect. Um, but then of course, there's most customers will then start protecting their assets. Um, and you know, honestly, while I'd love people to, you know, I'd love to say. You just click protect, you change your entire network overnight. That's not realistic. What people t- tend to do and customers do is they pick different projects mm-hmm. or different areas and they say, I'm going to protect this particular application or I'm going to protect this sensitive database and then build degrees out. And one of the things we'll show you with each of your assets is we show you those attack pathways so that you can see if I were an attacker, for example, coming from the Internet, here's all of the different ways I can take hops one degree, two degree, three degrees from the internet to get to that asset. And so you can start building rings of protection, degrees of freedom away from the things you want to protect. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. And to do that at the application layer, is that that's the right call. I like that. Yeah, and the yeah, detect I'm a, I'm a, I'm respond is... <laughs> yeah, and detect and respond, people are familiar with, right? They, you know, it's monitoring, it's detecting, it's, it's getting integrated into your SIM or into your SOC processes. Protection, though, is the one that takes a while, right? Because you've got to earn that trust that mm. you're you're actually protecting the right things, that you're not bringing down the business. So I, I can see how that kind of starts in certain areas and grows over time. Ultimately, you hope you can put all those protection mechanisms in place, but at least they have the detection and response side to, to deal with those incidents they're not trying to uh, block or enforce at that point. Exactly. You know, in fact, I actually changed my position. I used to suggest and recommend for protect, start with your most critical or what I called your most toxic assets, because, of course, those are the ones that are, have the highest value. Um, and actually, I was listening to Chase Cunningham from Forrester, who's a strong, obviously, proponent of zero trust networking. And his recommendation, and I think this is brilliant, is start with a project that you can be successful at. It doesn't have to be your critical one. Start with something that you're comfortable with, that you know the most, and gain and build a success with protect and then build on that success because it's a psychological thing too to actually expand out. So of course, obviously, from a prioritization, there are certain assets that are higher risk. But if you're going to change your posture to go from trust but verify to never trust always verify, you really have to build confidence in what you're doing. And so start with a start with a small project and make that success. Don't try to boil the ocean. That's great advice. Great advice. Yeah, Matt. Any uh, final questions for Harry? No, that was fantastic. It was a great overview, Harry. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Harry. Uh, mm-hmm. Our listeners can visit edgewise.net forward slash security weekly uh, and register to learn more about uh, Edgewise offerings. Um, and there's tons of content. Um, I, I know KT and, and team are working on lots of different uh, content uh, that's available on the website as well uh, if you want more information. So, Harry, thank you so much for appearing on Enterprise Security Weekly. Excellent. Paul, Matt, thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you. And with that, we'll take a short break, come back and talk about the enterprise security news. Stay tuned. Effectively securing your organization and its reputation requires a smarter approach. To maximize efficiency and minimize risk, security experts turn to Logrhythm, the only leading solution built solely for security teams by a security team committed to your success. With NextGen SIM, user and entity behavior analytics, network traffic and behavior analysis, security automation and orchestration, and compliance, Logrhythm provides security made smarter. The greatest threat to businesses today isn't the outsider trying to get in. It's the people you trust, the ones who already have the keys, your employees, your contractors, and privileged users. 60% of online attacks are carried out by insiders. To stop these insider threats, you need to see what users are doing before an incident occurs. Observe it combats insider threats by detecting risk activity, investigating in minutes, effectively responding, and stopping data lost. Give it a test drive at observeit.com forward slash security weekly. Today's determined attackers easily bypass even the most advanced network defenses. Trying to ramp up staff to detect their back doors can cost thousands of dollars and take months, even years. With Active Countermeasures AI Hunter, we enable junior analysts to detect even the most advanced back doors in a matter of hours. Sign up for a demo and purchase our product today by visiting activecountermeasures.com forward slash ESW. Active Countermeasures. Make every analyst a hunter. Welcome back, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. Quick announcement, April 1st through the 3rd uh, is InfoSec World 2019. Our listeners can get a 15% off uh, discount by using the code OS19-SECWEEK. So make sure you do that. And some big news this week, Mr. Matt Alderman. Um, we should probably start with the acquisition of Javelin Networks by Symantec, uh, which we talked about at the end of Business Security Weekly. Um, but of course, uh, congratulations to all of our fine friends at Javelin. Uh, just it's such a great group of people to work with, and I'm very happy for them and their technical expertise, um, is specifically with Active Directory, is damn impressive. Um, and they've shared a lot of that knowledge on the show. Uh, which is just, it's just awesome. It's just, it's really awesome. So. Yeah. And that's, it's two weeks in a row for a sponsor being acquired, right? Last week it was layered yep. insight by Qualys this week, Javelin networks by semantic. Um, yeah. So it, it kind of a, a good run for the shows with a couple of our sponsors. And, uh, and they also threw into this announcement that they acquired another a security vendor. Yeah. Unified enterprise and mobile threat protection app authority. Yeah, so it's kind of a double announcement here. They they acquired Javelin, which we all know from the shows, uh, and then AppThority on the mobile side. You know, I've seen these guys around for for a while, uh, bolstering out aspects of the mobile portfolio. Um, the the first couple stories and the last story are going to tie together in some mm. interesting ways. Um, but yeah, it's two very interesting uh, acquisitions here by Symantec. Yeah, that's uh, that is interesting. Is Symantec kind of shifts right? They sell off some of the businesses and they acquire new ones uh, as they kind of reposition themselves uh, in the market, which is which is interesting. Yeah, and that leads into the second article, which I thought was really, really interesting, is Toma Bravo to buy Veracode. Now, if everybody remembers, CA bought Veracode earlier this year for, what was it, like $650 million? Uh, something like that, yeah. Um, yep, so now Toma Bravo is buying 
Vericode from CA is part of the Broadcom acquisition for, I think, $950 million, uh, which yep. is very interesting, right? Because CA was building up a really interesting application security portfolio. Uh, as most listeners know, app user data, app user mm-hmm. data. I love the spaces. They, they're the things that survive any digital transformation. And, and CA had the identity side. Mm-hmm. They were doing some stuff on data. They were building out an app portfolio with the Vericode acquisition, the SourceClear acquisition. And SourceClear well, was uh, SourceClear was what? Did they have an open source uh, security monitoring solution? Is that SourceClear? Yes. Yeah, that was SourceClear. Okay. So kind of like Black Duck and Sonatype, yeah. yeah. looking at the um, mm-hmm. open source libraries, right? So CA was building out this really nice portfolio. They get mm-hmm. bought by Broadcom, and they spin out Vericode to Toma mm-hmm. Bravo, who bought Imperva. Web App Firewall, yeah, um, right. So Toma Bravo's building out a very interesting uh, security portfolio, For which sure. leads into your last story, which is the rumors that Toma Bravo has approached Semantic to potentially buy Semantic out. Um, wow. And so this news kind of broke yesterday um, uh, a little bit. I, I saw some of the back and forth on this, and think about that for a second, right? Tono, Tomo Bravo's, you know, if they bought Semantic mm. um, after some of these other acquisitions, think about the security portfolio that sits under Tomo Bravo for a second. And so uh, some of my friends were out pinging me yesterday about this. You know, is that good, bad? The other thing, mm-hmm. um, I think it's interesting because the, the one thing I've always had a little bit of concern with Semantic is, are they an enterprise security company or a consumer security company, mm. right? They have the consumer portfolio. Um, that uh, they've continued to expand with not only with the Norton product, but they also bought um, LifeLock, which I, I use uh, for, for my stuff. So you have this big consumer portfolio, but you also have this enterprise security company. And so, you know, if Toma Bravo bought it, do they keep both pieces? Do they maybe spin one out and rebundle some stuff? It, I think it would be really fascinating to see how kind of this whole strategy for Toma Bravo plays out. But these three articles all pretty interlinked um, this week in, in in the news. Yeah, that is interesting. And so some, are, are they, Toma Bravo, are they funding some companies and fully acquiring others? Or are those details like, is that too much inside baseball? <laughs> Um, well, I mean, remember, so they also, I think Toma Bravo has also bought Logarithm, who's, yeah. who's a sponsor as well, right? That's correct. So what they're doing is they're going in and buying, a, uh, major, I think, majority shareholdership okay. in these in these companies, mm-hmm. bringing them under the Toma Bravo name. I, Toma Bravo did this with Tripwire, mm-hmm. um, brought Tripwire in, did some work, spun it out to Belden. You know, they're a traditional private equity firm that's, that's doing transactions. So, mm-hmm. like I said, they're building up a really interesting security portfolio. The question is, what pieces, parts get combined or spun back out? It'll be interesting to see how that, that plays out. It's, just, uh, it's fascinating to me to watch how some of these PE firms work. Yeah, I think, well, I think it could be good for Symantec um, uh, to, you know, get bought. And I think that one of the things that happens is that there tends to be an influx of innovation and then that sets up the next move, right? And I don't know what that is, uh, you know, for Symantec, but it could breathe some innovation, and especially with Symantec's more recent uh, acquisitions, really reposition uh, Symantec in the market, which I'm kind of surprised they haven't made more acquisitions uh, to enhance their endpoint uh, product. But I, you know, I guess some of them look at it as competition, but certainly interesting. I don't think Symantec's going anywhere. Uh, I'd be curious no. to see what their valuation is too. 
I mean, yeah, that, I think that would be interesting to a lot of public companies to see what kind yeah. of valuation yeah. Home Brown puts on yeah. them. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's see what else we got in the news. Nobleforce's new GRC platform um, is entering into the risk management arena, which I thought was kind of interesting. I think of Nobleforce as not so much a GRC and compliance company, but more of an end user security awareness and training uh, company. So I was a little kind of taken back by this announcement. Yeah, I was miffed by this one too, actually, because I, I went out and I went, so wait a minute, GRC, I know a lot of the GRC players. Mm. I was in that space for a long time and I'm, I go to their website and it's security awareness, it's phishing. And I'm like, this is kind of odd. It just, um, it's it kind of out of left field. It's not part of their kind of core message. I don't, see, you know, you have to dig in to find the GRC product. I don't see much on their homepage about it at all. Um, so yeah, it's kind of out of left field for me. Um, why, why GRC platform? Look, there's big players out there. There's new startups in this space. I don't know how a security awareness phishing company really addresses the broader mm. governance, risk management, and compliance. I don't know. Interesting announcement. Um, Threat Quotient had an announcement this week that they're, it looks like they're integrating um, a new source of data from the Visa investigations team. Uh, specifically for obviously payment type, uh, you know, threat intelligence, which is interesting. Now, I want to take a step back and think about this space. As this space has grown so far past traditional threat intelligence, right? If you look at what I believe are the major players in this space, you've got Threat Connect, Threat Quotient, Anomaly, and Recorded Future. And I, I believe they've all you had a lot of different announcements in kind of pivots into different uh, areas. Uh, Threat Connect had the announcement that they're integrating SOAR into the platform. Recorded Future does some really cool stuff that I feel like goes above and beyond uh, traditional uh, threat intelligence and some of the other vendors do as well. So this has been a difficult space to navigate because it gets lumped into, and I'm sure Gartner, right, puts them in threat intelligence platforms, right? But there's a lot more underneath the covers that I'm excited that we're going to have the opportunity to explore, you know, through the show and our work as uh, analysts now in the industry. So, yeah. And it, I mean, it's, this is interesting. It's another set of indicators of potential compromise on, on payment transaction stuff. I think it's good to have. Um, the question is, is thre threat quotient going to be the only source for this data? Is it going to sure. be available elsewhere? But you see them all trying to figure out how to bring more of that data into their platforms to continue um, to drive value for their customers. So, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it makes sense. It's a, it's a good announcement. Uh, I just don't know if Visa is going to do this with others or it's going to be exclusive. It'll be interesting to see how some of this plays out. Absolutely. Um, now, this next one in here, uh, I did not get a chance to to research, but I put it in there because it's something like we've never really talked about uh, a company. Dehua Technology, have you heard of them before? No. This is more home security based is on the it? way okay. I read this article. It's it's really doing monitoring around the perimeter of your home, not necessarily uh, your network. Okay. Okay, yeah. that could be why. Yeah, AI-powered facial recognition technology, which is interesting. Yep. Yeah, I wasn't sure if they were targeting enterprises or home. Uh, there looks like home consumer stuff for me. Yeah, that's what it looked like to me. Their language is very much enterprise security, not consumer <laughs> security focused. So I don't know if this was an announcement for investors or uh, you know some kind of market play, but I I can't see the the home user reading that in. 
really being kind Understanding of in their, it. Yeah. yeah, and being in their language, right? Like they use very enterprisey uh, type terms in there. Um, but I, I think there are a lot of uh, physical security systems that certainly uh, will segue into the enterprise and become more integrated into the uh, you know security kind of uh, architecture. But yeah, yeah um, I kind of skipped it. Sorry, that's okay. Firemon delivers hybrid cloud security with new visibility and orchestration capabilities, which is a natural pivot that I think uh, many in the traditional, obviously firewall uh, management, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, firewall management uh, space, right, are trying to make uh, pivots into different things. And orchestration, I, I think, is something they already knew how to do, right? I think they're just going to apply it to uh, different technologies. Um, which is fine. And I think if you can, you know, get value out of the firewall management process and also leverage it for some orchestration capabilities, that that's a good thing. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of pivots in that, in that arena. Yeah. I mean, look, it, this is a natural announcement. I, I have to be in the cloud and on-prem. So I need a hybrid solution because that's how customers are, mm -hmm. are using technology today. And orchestration, we've been talking about for, you and I have been talking about this forever, right? Mm -hmm. um, we're finally seeing the pickup of more orchestration automation solutions, natural fit for FireMont to add those capabilities and then also make it uh, available for both on-premise and cloud infrastructure. It's, just, it's a natural um, move of, of where all these vendors are ultimately going to have to go. Absolutely. Uh, what else we got? Um, there's an Shake anti security. Yeah, yeah. and I, it's interesting. I was looking at some market data that was kind of analyzing or, or displaying the players in fraud uh, protection and, and prevention. And it's an interesting space. A lot of funding going into that space. I think it when you apply the uh, techniques of machine learning and or AI, to monitor for fraud, I think it's a much more concrete kind of use case, right? There's a lot less variables in uh, many cases when, when we talk about fraud. And so there's a lot of funding into security firms that are, you know, driving anti-fraud uh, prevention. And, and that's a broad term for, I think, a lot of different technologies. I think that was one of my takeaways from that market analysis was, you know, what kind of fraud are they protecting against? I mean, certainly... You know, there's if you're a PCI merchant, you know, there's credit card fraud, but then the, you know, payment providers have to worry about that level of fraud. But I think a, a financial institution like a bank has a different, maybe, you know, aspects of fraud that they have to worry about, certainly. And then, you know, your, your e commerce retailer, how do I know people aren't essentially stealing on a fraud basis, right? Then you've got payment providers like PayPal and, what is the new newfangled one that all the hipsters using? Venmo? Is it Venmo? Did I say that right? Venmo? V Vimo? Venmo? Ven yeah, Ven I don't Ven remember. Yeah. Venmo. I did say it right. Um, you know, they've got a, a different, you know, kind of fraud that might that might take place, right? So and I think that's why the fraud market is becoming more broad and ending up on our radar in security because there's there's a lot of different aspects to it. Um, I'm not yeah, sure which I one shape security was in, but yeah, RSA has had a fraud portfolio for a while. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I was there, 2012 to 2014, fraud was a big part of the business. It tied in a little bit to the identity, but they 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 still have uh, fraud services out there. This one looks to be more on the identity credential imitation type attacks of fraud, where people are trying to um, 
impersonate somebody else. Mm-hmm. It's kind of where, where it looked like this article and in what shape security was doing. It's interesting because Allegis Capital is here, Bob Ackerman um, in this round. I don't know if he was in previous rounds. I didn't go back and look at all the funding history. These guys have $130 million in after this series E. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting technology. I just don't know the fraud space that well, even though I was at RSA for a few years, cause right. I was more focused on the GRC front. Um, have you looked into lookout for mobile? Yeah. That's their mobile security, right? I feel like yes. we don't cover mobile security enough. Not much. Yeah. I mean, I, we know some folks that went over to lookout, um, uh, that we used to do work mm-hmm. with in the past. Um, I, I don't know them very well. I know they're in the mobile security space. Uh, obviously, mobile is a concern. Um, like I said, uh, I think last week or a couple weeks ago, yeah, I still don't use mobile banking. I just don't trust it yet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, this was more of an announcement for Middle East partnerships with Lookout, sure. which means Lookout is starting to expand over into the Middle East. Uh, uh, Nuvias Partners is in the Middle East, right? So this is more of an expansion story for Lookout moving beyond uh, maybe the North American market into the Middle East. There's a lot of mobile overseas in, in some of these markets. So, you know, looking at mobile security is, is probably some good moves from an expansion standpoint for them. Yeah, I, I, you know, there's, uh, when you deploy an MDM solution, I don't know, do they call it, they don't really call it MDM anymore. I think we've largely gotten away from that as an industry term. Um, mobile protection, I think, is more, uh, you know, where it falls. But those projects are very tricky, right? Anytime you're trying to secure that end device that's, you know, in that, in the user's hands, um, I think the the struggle in the challenge today, quite frankly, is that devices are so cheap that the users just go get a dedicated device, either for, you know for their personal or for their work, and then you know doesn't matter if they're putting some kind of management solution on there because it's not interrupting their workflow. Um, I've run into this in, in a couple of different cases where you know basically devices are so cheap now that you know people just go get new ones um, right. and, or have two, right? Yeah, you carry two. You carry one for work so you can get to work email because you have all this mobile security stuff loaded and you can't do anything else. And then you carry your personal to go do everything else, which is bypassing part of the rationale of having the mobile security in the first place. But look, people are doing it and they're going to continue to do it because users don't want to be shut down from accessing other stuff. And I know why corporations want to try to do it, but users are just going to go get another device and, and go around it. Yeah. And, and I think um, in my experiences uh, recently, the, the enforcement of authentication to the device really is a tricky uh, usability versus security thing. Um, and, I think I'll, I, and I think it's a, uh, you know, the fault of uh, society as we've progressed with mobile devices. We like it to be very easy to access our device, right? And I think that corporations say, well, if you're going to access sensitive data, that you know authentication process you have to have a much higher level of security and that's not something people are accustomed to right they want a quick easy fingerprint facial recognition maybe a short passcode right but that i mean it's very similar to the way um hospital employees and doctors uh you know have to authenticate to do their jobs that's how people are interfacing with mobile i want to pick up my phone and not have to worry about going through a complicated multi-factor authentication process or enter a really long pin number that if I get it wrong, now my device is locked and now I can't do anything, 
that in that and that's bad. So I think the usability and security uh, aspect of mobile device security is is interesting and challenging. Very, because we want it instantly. That's the way we think, and we don't want many barriers to get to the data we want to get to. And it's just human nature, right? I mean, we as security professionals, I think we put up with a little more, uh, you know, less usability, I should say, uh, to accomplish that. You know, I'm using a physical two-factor uh, in combination with, you know, my Android phone, which requires sometimes if I want to authenticate the stuff, uh, I got to go either like an NFC two-factor or plug into the USB-C port uh, in addition to entering my password, uh, you know, like for LastPass on my phone. That That's how it's set up. So... Um, but that's, there's some inconvenience that, that couples that, that I'm willing to go through for, you know, for my phone, but I, most typical users aren't willing to go through that inconvenience. Uh, true. Including my wife. She hates that I have two factor Google authenticator set up on her email account, but I'm like, well, that's, yeah. that's why it's going to run. <laughs> right. That's why, I mean, to go back to, you know, come full circle to the edge wise when they're applying that to applications, it's also why I like that tactic for authenticating users to devices, right? Um, it, it, because it's, it's much more, uh, usable, but also if done correctly can provide, I think that same layer of security, but I think the technology, uh, is, uh, emerging and maturing. Um, I think quickly enough where we're, we're going to see that in a lot of, uh, organization. And if you think about it on the enterprise front, mobile aside, right, if you've got an identity service, a single sign on service coupled with authentication, it, basically, your authentication could potentially give you access to every single application, right? So the authentication behind that has to be really strong. Uh, and typically, that's a physical two-factor. People lose them. You know, there's all those headaches that uh, are associated with it. I think Duo made huge strides, obviously had a very successful exit and a lot of great customer success stories uh, from Duo on that front because I think they were able to make it usable and easy to to implement i think that's why they essentially like won in that space is where i i how i would phrase it because they they tackled those things it's not necessarily a technical thing right but it, it has to be operationally efficient and, and easy to use which is not easy to do yeah and there's a number of new startups in this uh market too mm -hmm. and i think you're going to see more of this right leveraging all this data about how you use things and where you are in your phone, et cetera, yep. to make it easier to um, authenticate into applications. So I, I, at some point, we'll probably do a segment just on that because there are a number of new startups in that space that I think are really interesting to track and watch. Absolutely. Well, thank you, everyone, for watching this edition of Enterprise Security Weekly. Matt, thank you very much. And that will conclude the show. Thank you for listening and watching. We'll see you next time.